This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of June 7th through 11th, 2021. And on Monday, June 7th, we have the contestants Verlinda Johnson-Henning, a human resources consultant from Memphis, Tennessee, Derek Allen, an accountant from Cassopolis, Michigan, and Julia Markham Cameron, an attorney from Brooklyn, New York, whose two-day cash winnings last week were $26,250. This is the second week of my bailout as guest host. Uh, I think she did a very fine job this week as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, we get the Jeopardy round categories, landmarks, top British baby names, some good news, arrivals and departures, hair guitar, or really air guitar, but spelled H-E-I-R. I tried to give an H because this is an audio medium, but it's not how it's pronounced. Uh, and bring it on. Each correct response beginning with O-N. Your hair with an H made me think of King's Quest. King's Quest 4, was it? Did you oh, play the King's Quest um, games? Yes. Air Today, Gone Tomorrow. Air, Air Today, Gone Tomorrow, yes. <laughs> it yes. only works if you pronounce Was the that H. King's Quest 4? Probably. I think King's. it might have been 4. Um, well, now I have to look it up. King's Quest 4... Uh, no, that was uh, Perils no. of Rosella. King's was Quest it? 6 or 7? King's Quest Maybe 6. 6. Why did I think it was 4? Yeah, uh, 6. Anyway, some good news. A, was a nice category. And B, like, were they referencing John Krasinski's web series? Maybe. Because that was the immediate association for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they might have been. I wish he had done more of those, but yeah, it was nice what he did. Yeah, it was. Emily, uh, apparently your name is becoming less popular uh, in the top British baby names, or at least in Britain, the $600 level, while Freya is on the rise, which is just awesome. This name shared by Blunt and Mortimer dropped a few notches, and that's Emily. Mm-hmm. Emily Blunt, of course, is John Krasinski's wife. Mm-hmm. So there we go. Yes, clearly a connection. Um, I would love to teach a student named Freya, though. Yeah. Though I might have a, I don't know, I would have a hard time not, like, geeking out about her name. Because she'd probably be mm-hmm. like, it's just my name, dude. Yep. Yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Nobody had heard my deep dive about North Pole exploration. That's exactly what I thought when that came up. <laughs> uh, arrivals and departures at the $1,000 level, August 8, 1866. He is born to sharecropper parents in Maryland. The North Pole awaits. That is Matthew Henson. The Matthew Henson and Robert Peary. Yeah, so Matthew Henson. We talked about him. Oh, gosh, when was that? Was, like a year ago, Yeah, maybe. it was a while ago now, but... Yeah. Daily Double number one comes up at the $800 level of landmarks as the 16th pick. Derek finds it, and at that point, he has 1600 to Julia's 1800 and Verlinda's 4000 He makes it a true, true daily double, as well he should, and gets the clue. Commissioned to celebrate France's military victories, it stands smack in the middle of 
Place Charles de Gaulle. And that is the Arc de Triomphe. He gets that right and uh, moves up close to closer, pretty close to first place. Mm -hmm. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Julia has taken the lead with 6,600. Derek is at 5,000. Verlinda is at 4,200. And we have the Double Jeopardy categories, History Before 1738, Isms, UK TV, Science and Technology, Consciousness of Stream Writing, and It's Hyphenated. We had a triple stumper in the history category that, I mean, I talked about in a deep dive once, not terribly in-depth, though. Uh, at the $1,600 level, this restored king of Great Britain reigned during the Great Plague and Great Fire that struck London in the 1660s. Nobody tried it. That was Charles II. That's part of the House of Stuart. James I. Then Charles mm-hmm. I. Then the uh, Glorious Revolution, mm. during which Oliver Cromwell, I believe, was Lord Protector. And then the Restoration happens with Charles II, who I believe is then followed by James II. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's a good reminder. I still am working on those kings of England. I thought smart of Derek to start not too specific at the $1,600 level of consciousness of stream writing. Uh, The clue there was Alan Moorhead published histories of these two main branches of the world's longest river. Derek started with what is the Nile? They were looking for the two branches, though. So he got prompted for more Mm -hmm. uh, and gave the Blue Nile and the White Nile. If you look carefully at the clue, you can see uh, that they're looking for two answers, not one. But since... Nile is part of those branches, yeah, it's so not... It wasn't wrong. Right, exactly. And if you're too specific, you just get ruled wrong. Right. As we'll see later in the week. Mm-hmm. Well, we get Daily Double number two in the isms category at the $1,600 level. Uh, Julia finds it. She is at 9,800. Derek's at 7,400 and Verlinda's at 13,000. And she wagers 4,000. It's pick number 16. And she gets the clue. Uh, it's a video clue with Jimmy uh, in Budapest. The clue is the Jewish Museum in Budapest, which is part of the Great Synagogue Complex, is built on the site of the house where Theodore Herzl, father of this movement, was born in 1860. And she gets it correct with what is Zionism? Yeah, those isms were kind of all over the map. Yeah. Some of them were ideologies, but then we had embolism right. and spoonerism. Right. Which yeah. was nice that it wasn't all just like ideological isms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And Daily Double number three is at the $1,200 level of science and technology, and we don't find it until pick number 27. Julia finds it. She's in the lead at this point with 17,400. Uh, Verlinda's at 15,000 and Derek is at 11,000. Uh, Julia wagers 2,000. She doesn't want to risk dropping into second place uh, this close to the end of the game. And she gets the clue. A common measure of walking was coined when a Japanese company called its pedometer the Manpoke or this many steps meter. Uh, and Julia tried what is 10, but the correct answer here is 10,000. I knew of 10,000 as kind of a common benchmark for like enough steps um, from having a Fitbit. Mm-hmm. I guess you could also 
get to the correct answer if you knew some Japanese, maybe. Right. Um, but that seems like kind of the two options is to have heard of 10,000 as a as a common be- benchmark from like a health and fitness perspective or to be able to translate. Yeah. The round ends a few clues later. Uh, Julia makes up the 2,000 at the last clue. So she's back to 17,400. Derek is at 11,000. And Verlinda is at 15,000. They get the final Jeopardy category, Golden Age Actresses. And the clue, in 2013, the Victoria and Albert Museum acquired her archives, including letters from Laurence Olivier and Tennessee Williams. Uh, Derek, bet it all, which I think was too much. Yeah, that's, I, I, <laughs> um, I would agree. Yeah. Uh, and wrote, who is Olivia de Havilland? Which is uh, not a bad guess for the time. Like, she was a Golden Age actress, but that is incorrect. Verlinda wrote, who is Vivian Lee? And that is correct. She wagered 2500 And Julia made a cover bet of 12601 but wrote, who is Jessica Tandy? So she drops down. And Verlinda, who, you know, I don't want to... I don't want to stereotype, but was significantly older than the other two contestants, perhaps mm-hmm. may have had a, a bit of an advantage. Mm, yeah. Being the only one to get it. Uh, I thought that I'm, I'm sure my mom knew that because she's a film buff. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did not know this one either. So Verlinda is the champion. Yes. And on Tuesday, June 8th, we have the contestants Tim Lopez, a storytelling coach. It's a cool job title. Yeah. Really. Originally from Los Angeles, California. Molly Feibel, a historic interpreter from Statsburg, New York. Also a cool job title. Mm-hmm. I wonder where specifically. And Verlinda Johnson Henning, a human resources consultant from Memphis, Tennessee, whose one day cash winnings total 17500 And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Frederick Law Olmsted, musical genres, <laughs> clues from the first crossword puzzle. Uh, it was published in 1913. Welcome to the party. Fashionably and late. A lot of this week, I just, I, I had a weird set of games playing from my couch this week, uh, where in a lot of categories, I would only know the $1,000 or $2,000 hmm. level clue or or the or the very top row and the bottom row but none of the middle stuff interesting um yeah probably that was just kind of weird random things that i've picked up and gaps in my knowledge but i did i did wonder if some of them might have been kind of miscalibrated difficulty levels yeah we had a triple stuffer at the bottom of the welcome to the party category thousand dollar level this splinter wing of the Democratic Party welcomed Strom Thurmond with a presidential nomination in 1948. Uh, Molly guessed what is the Independent Party. That's the Dixiecrat Party. Mm-hmm. And that I know I, I mentioned Parks and Recreation an awful lot, but it's because I've watched <laughs> it an awful lot, and I think it's a very good show. Uh, but one of the town council members, the, the very, very old guy, was once a member of the Dixiecrat Party. And that's one of the jokes that has stuck with me from mm. that show. He ran on a platform of resegregating Major League Baseball, I believe. Oy. <laughs> uh. Ugh. We had a tricky 
one in late uh, where we had um, two incorrect responses before the correct one. Uh, the clue there was carpool karaoke is a segment on this CBS show. Uh, Molly tried what is the late show with James Corden. Verlinda tried what is late night with James Corden. Uh, Tim got it with the late late show with James Corden. Mm-hmm. So everyone was close. Yeah, they knew it was all James Corden, which probably yep. feels pretty good for him, mm-hmm. you know. But that was that was a funny clue because it like points out that like all those shows have basically the same name, mm-hmm. and it's not really about the title of the show; it's the person who's running it. Yeah, yeah. Daily Double Number One is in the fashionably category at the eight hundred dollar level. Uh, Verlinda finds it, and she is at thirty four hundred. Molly's at one thousand, and Tim is at forty two hundred, and she only wagers five hundred. She mm-hmm. gets the clue. I say, old chap, wide neckties include the cravat and this one suitable for wear at the British racecourse of the same name. She gets that correct with what is an ascot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Verlinda is at 3,900, Molly's at 1,000, and Tim is up to 5,200. We get the double Jeopardy categories, Lakes of Europe, Animal Named Animals, for example, a bulldog, Mayan gives us, a literature sampler, summer movies, Keep the Faith, and LMN. Oh, correct responses will contain L, M, and N in that order. Mm-hmm. I liked the Keep the Faith category, of course. There was a little conversation among Jeopardy contestants about whether uh, the Mormon Church slash Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints comes up kind of disproportionately frequently on Jeopardy. Hmm. I'm not sure if it does. Maybe it, it it comes up a lot. I think it comes up. I don't. I mean, disproportionate. Sure, like disproportionate to what? Yeah, yeah. To, to what? Like, does it come up too much? I would say no. We have certainly yeah. commented on things that come up a lot more often. That's true. And you know, I mean, Jeopardy is a United States game show, and I feel like the, the Mormon Church is significant in U.S. history as well as you know, like it, as well as. Uh, you know, as an American religion, as right. well as, you know, just as religious knowledge in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, kind of, there's a, there's a, there's more than one reason to, to know about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about the answer at the $2,000 level of Keep the Faith. Mm-hmm. Um, that clue is founded in Iran at the mid 19th century. This faith has no priesthood and believes in the unity of humanity. Tim tried what is Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism is actually super ancient. Mm-hmm. It's really, really old. Yeah. Um, Baha'i is the correct answer there. Mm-hmm. Rain Wilson is yes. Baha'i. Mm-hmm. I should learn more about Baha'i. Um, but knowing that it is relatively new is important. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two comes up in the LMN category at the $800 level. It's the 10th pick. And Tim finds this one. He's at 11,200 to Verlinda's 3,900 and Molly's 3,800. And he wagers 4,800. He'll still have a good lead if he misses, which is, I think, how I would be thinking about that uh, from from that uh, from that position. He's already I mean, if it's not going to time out right now, but like he is, you know, he's already at more than twice second place's score. 
He gets the clue. Hammurabi's code specified this as a payment of one piece of silver to a former wife by her former husband. And he gets that one correct with alimony. Yeah. Which is interesting. I mean, whenever I hear, like, historical contexts of, like, divorce, I'm always like, huh. Because, I I, I don't know, maybe it's just growing up when I grew up, it, it... it was painted as like, it's a pretty new thing. Like, you know, husbands and wives had split up, you know, in the past, but it was a very uncommon thing. And divorce is all the rage now. And 50% of marriages end in divorce and all this non- mm-hmm. you know, nonsense. So like the, like, I guess, childhood idea of like a marriage splitting up it, it, for, for whatever reason, it just sticks to me as something that's, I don't know newly codified we just invented that yeah. yeah not 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 in the sense of like no one had ever split up you know but like to think that it would be codified in hammurabi's code to me is mm-hmm. like oh wow yeah interesting yeah mm-hmm. yeah but it of course makes sense because people have been actually civilized for a very long time Mm-hmm. human relationships are and have always been complicated um. <laughs> no 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 <laughs> no the ones that we have been involved with are unique because we, because we were teenagers. Uh. <laughs> uh, back in olden times, they were like, well, our life expectancies are very short <laughs> relative to <laughs> right. uh, those of, you know, several centuries from now. So probably we should just live with this bad marriage. You know, so probably probably she's going <laughs> to die in childbirth. I mean, um, yeah. So I mean, I'm going to get we'll just kicked by it. a horse tomorrow anyway. So it's like it's a big deal. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Daily Double number three is in the animal named animals category at the $1,200 level. Uh, Verlinda finds it. She is at $3,100. Molly's at $9,000. Tim is at $14,800. She is way behind. And she bets $1,000. It's pick number 23. I'd say just go for it there. Yeah. As the as the rest of the game plays out, you know, you can see that um, if Verlinda got two, found two Daily Doubles and was correct on both of them with pretty small wagers, mm-hmm. um... And by the end of the game, was not within reach of victory. But if she had decided to go bigger on these, could have been. Yeah. Um, yeah. She gets the clue. This largest pinniped gets its name from its size and its trunk-like snout. And she gets it correct with what is an elephant seal? So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Tim has the lead with 17,200. Molly's at 9,000. Verlinda's at 4,500. We have the final Jeopardy category, food and drink phrases. And the clue, a 1951 Time article said, since the war, this two-word term for a period of time has been written into union contracts. I forgot the category and had no idea how to tackle this one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Verlinda got it correct uh, with what, what is coffee break? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they have you write the the question word before revealing the clue on your uh, electronic thing. So I think both days that she competed, she you know was directed to write what or who or whatever. But mm-hmm. then when the answer came to her, she wrote it as a complete sentence. So she ended up with double what's. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she has wagered everything, so she goes up to nine thousand. Unfortunately, that's not going to be enough. Molly has what is a lunch break? That's not correct. Um, and she's wagered 7,000 of her 9,000. So she drops down to 2,000. And Tim has what is he has crossed out happy hour and started to put lunch break. Uh, he didn't finish writing it, though. 
in either case, not correct. And he's wagered 2,800 and drops to 14,400. But he was in enough of a lead that he is the champion. Mm-hmm. On Wednesday, we have the contestants Mara Davis, a conference and events manager from Chicago, Illinois. Shannon Devishorn, an attorney originally from Port Charlotte, Florida, and Tim Lopez, a storytelling coach originally from Los Angeles, California, who just won $14,400. And we get the Jeopardy round categories, National Flowers, The Wire, Let Me Pitch That For You, The UK in the 1980s, Silent Letter Words, and The Tony Awards. We have had a lot of UK categories, British Mm, categories this week. Yes. Yeah, we have. The Tony Award Awards turned out not to be about the Tony Awards. It was about awards given to people named Tony. Or playing Tony. Yes. <laughs> For the $400. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of this UK in the 1980s history was, well, some of it, was covered in The Crown. So, you know, yet another. There you go. Get your Jeopardy questions correct. By watching The Crown. Yeah. The $200 clue. This PM was re-elected by a landslide in 1983, and her conservative party used its majority to usher in wide changes. That's Margaret Thatcher. And they uh, they softened their approach to Margaret Thatcher, to, to old Maggie, <laughs> the Iron yes. Lady there. They, uh, they simply presented, <laughs> simply presented a, a, a fact. Mm-hmm. Not editorialized. Not, not as editorialized as perhaps the last couple of times she's shown up. Mm-hmm. I was sort of amused by the $800 level of let me pitch that for you. In a recent ad, Chipotle asked if one of these handheld items could change the world. Uh, I heard handheld item and I was like, why? Is it like, is, is it like an electronic device? It's a burrito. Yeah. A burrito is that the handheld item. I don't know. I just I, burrito as a handheld it item. Was, it was a strange. Me. Yeah, it was a strange wording <laughs> for that. But yeah. I mean, if you know what Chipotle is. Right. Um, yes. I mean, we have almost as many Chipotles as we do Starbucks here. Yeah. My Chipotle and Starbucks are next to each other. (laughs) Daily Double number one is in the wire at the $800 level. And Shannon finds it as the 14th pick. She has $3,600 at this point. Tim and Mara are tied at $1,600. And she wagers $1,600 maybe because she is seeing that number. You have to kind of come up with your your wager pretty quickly. And I wonder if that kind of cued her to go for that number. She gets the clue on HBO's The Wire. This state's governor, Robert Ehrlich, had a cameo as a security guard. And she paused for a second and then correctly responded, what is Maryland? Uh, Mayim noted that the show was set in Baltimore. I immediately thought Maryland and then I was uh, not sure if there was something more complicated I was supposed to be thinking of. Um, which I wonder if that was her hesitation. Yeah, I, I thought I was like, the only thing I can think of is Maryland, because I know that it's in Baltimore. And I don't know what other what other governor would like <laughs> would be relevant to this. Yeah, it would be like a pretty big mislead to be like, you know, the governor, of, <laughs> the governor of this state had a cameo on the wire. And then the answer is like Florida or like, you know, Wyoming or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Jeopardy clues usually want to lead you to the right answer. Yeah. Not always, but usually. But usually. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Shannon's in the lead with 7,000. 
Mara's at 4,800, Tim's at 4,400, and we have the Double Jeopardy categories poetic book titles, the A-list, A in quotation marks, additives, TV comedy character names, people from that state, and body words. I like the people from that state category. Yeah. I mean, Hoosiers, you know. You sort of knew that one was going to come up. Yeah, yeah. But the $1,200 clue, this word for someone from New Haven or New Britain rhymes with butter. Connecticutter. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. I don't know. Like, I grew up next to Connecticut and... (laughs) I mean, not next to. Like, you know, I grew up in New England, right? Like, adjacent to Connecticut. And I don't hear people from Connecticut really use that conversationally. Uh, Do they use something else, though? Not really, though. Yeah. No, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Mayim said there that these are uh, people from that state, what they're called per the government publishing office, mm-hmm. you know? So, like, my sense is maybe some of these are, like, more embraced. Right. Than, than, than others. others. Yeah. Yeah. We get the second daily double in that category, just the next pick. It's a $1,600 level. It's pick number seven. Mara finds it. Uh, she is at 6,800, Tim's at 4,400, and Shannon is at 8,200. She wagers 2,600, and the clue is two of the three states whose final S becomes an N to describe their residents. And she takes up all the time. She says she knows one of them, that the buzzer says, what is Illinois and something, but they are looking for Texas or Kansas or Arkansas. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a difficult one. Yeah. I mean, if you try to get just like go through the list of states, yeah. Yeah. I got to Kansas and Arkansas pretty quick because they're both, it's mm-hmm. Kansas and Arkansas. Right? right. Like, if you think of one, <coughs> you should think of the other. Mm-hmm. I also had Illinois come to mind and then it didn't feel quite right. And then Il- I, uh. Illinois. Yeah. I don't, what do you call a person from Illinois? I, th- I think it's Illinoisan. Illinois, yeah, it's it's Illinoisan, but it's with an you A-N. Add an add an an after spelling the complete word of Illinois. You, yeah. Daily double number three comes up as the second to last pick, the twenty ninth pick in the poetic book titles category. At the sixteen hundred dollar level, uh, Shannon finds this one. Uh, she's at fourteen thousand two hundred to Mara's 13,800 and Tim's 7,600. And she gets the clue from Sonnet 30 by Shakespeare. When to the sessions of sweet silent thought, I summon up this Marcel Proust title. And she can't come up with anything. It is remembrance of things past. So she drops down a little. Oh, I didn't say her wager. She wagered a thousand. Yeah, which, I mean, I've never read it and don't ever plan on reading it. So I think the only thing I'm telling myself, the only thing that I would need to know is that the title is Remembrance of Things Past. Uh, Also something about a Madeline, the cookie. It's like... It's an important thing. Yeah, it's like... It's like I took a bite of this cookie and it brought back, like, you know, all of these memories. And then it's like, I don't know, like 3,000 pages of, like, memories. (laughs) Uh, Okay. This cookie prompted this memory thing. Um, Okay. It's kind of the frame. Cool. It's a powerful cookie. Yeah. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Tim is at 7,600. Shannon is at 15,200. Mara is at 13,800. We get the 
Final Jeopardy category, 1960s Singers and the Clue. In 2002, Macon, Georgia, where he grew up, unveiled a statue of this man who sits overlooking the water, a nod to his posthumous number one hit. Tim wrote, Who is Little Richard? That is incorrect. He wagered 2400 Mara got it correct. She wrote, Who is Otis Redding? And she bet everything. Not strategic, but she got it right, so no harm. Mm -hmm. Shannon got it incorrect with who is Hendrix, and she wagered a cover bet of 12,401. So that means Mara gets a pretty big payday Mm -hmm. coming from second place. That's right. So on Thursday, June 10th, we have the contestants Becky Parks, a healthcare researcher from Washington, D.C., Ankit Gupta, a product manager from Somerville, Massachusetts, and Mara Davis, a conference and events manager from Chicago, Illinois, whose one-day cash winnings total 27600 And we have the Jeopardy round categories 15 love, deuce, add in, add in quotation marks, game, set, and match. I still don't really understand tennis scoring, but I, 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 I've got it enough to know that these are like tennis scoring categories. <laughs> That's the, yeah. Because, you know, when you get one point, it's actually 15 points, unless it's actually just 10 points. I know. It's, um, <laughs> How does that not make sense? Yeah. And yeah. a little trivia. The reason it's love, love. <laughs> is because it comes from the French for goose egg, I believe, which is like mm-hmm. loof. Mm-hmm. And that, yep. is, that is why love is zero. Yes. It means the egg. Yep. <laughs> Luff. Yeah. That's a fun fact. I like that one. In that 15 love category, we have an instance of giving too much information at the $200 level. The clue was in a 2003 book. This 15-year-old could have counted the freckles on Cho Chang's nose as she steals a kiss from him. Uh, Ankit rang in and said, what is Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? They were just looking for the character name, Harry Potter. And actually, this incident, Mayim notes, happens in The Order of the Phoenix, not Goblet of Fire. Yeah, she really flexes on him there. <laughs> yes. Mayim Bialik, encyclopedic knowledge of Harry Potter, notes available to her on the like yeah. thing they give to the host. Right. Who knows, really? I gotta feel like that wouldn't have been a note, you know? Yeah. Or it could have come in via the earpiece also. Could've. Like if they if they had to, I wonder if they had to like stop tape. Yeah. yeah who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I like to think she has encyclopedic knowledge of the Harry Potter That's, books. I would think so. Yeah. I mean, she's got kids. She's probably read them. At yeah. least to the kids. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, Lord Byron came up in Deuce. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, did a, I did a deep dive on him also. Uh, uh, basically asking who wrote Child Harold's Pil- Pilgrimage. Um, and Becky knew that one. Daily Double number one is in the set category at the $1,000 level. It's the last pick of the round. It's number 30. Uh, Becky finds it. She is at 5000 Mars at 4200 and Ankit's at 1800 And she wagers a mere 800 So she wants to not fall behind Mara, I guess, going into the break. She gets clued this type of diagram that over that uses overlapping circles to illustrate two set relationships is named for a 19th century Englishman. She gets that correct with what is a Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the 
the end of the round, the scores are the same, except that uh, Becky has moved up to 5,800. And we get the Double Jeopardy categories, Biblical Broadway, Famous Americans, Shades of Green, Bookborn Words and Phrases, Railway and Substations, and Three-Letter Palindromes. Mm-hmm. We had kind of a an amusing miss in the Biblical Broadway category at the $1,600 level. The clue there was Patty Chayefsky's Gideon is based on this occupational book of the Old Testament. Occupational in, is in quotation marks. Uh, Becky rang in and said, what is job? Uh, the book of job. <laughs> uh, which I I could see that from mm-hmm. like the occupational in quotation marks, right? Yeah. Like you could, you could interpret that as, oh, that's wordplay. Because even if you know Job is a name. It's still spelled J-O-B. It's spelled J-O-B. Yeah. Job. Get mm-hmm. job. Right? Like, you know, it, it seems like it's a like a pun, like wordplay kind of clue. But that's incorrect. Mara follows up with, uh, by trying to, trying the same response, but pronouncing Job in the traditional way for the book of the Bible. What is Job? That's, um, you know, that's that's not what they were looking for. They would have accepted Job if right. they were looking for Job. Right. Um, yeah. And Ankit, like, puts up his hands like, no, thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, they're looking for judges. If you uh, knew the Old Testament in a little more detail, you could have kind of matched up Gideon to kind of... Um, that period of history, but that's that's a little kind of yeah. specific for mm-hmm. for many trivia players. Yeah, yeah, really. If they give like the occupational in in quotes, I mean, it's either like judges or kings, and I don't know that king would really be would count as a occupation, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. In that same category, at the next pick, we find daily double number two. Uh, Mara still has control. It's the eleventh pick. Uh, it's at the two thousand dollar level. She she has sixty six hundred to Ankit's forty two hundred and Becky's three thousand, and she wagers twenty four hundred of it. She gets the clue: John the Baptist and Judas are played by the same actor in this nineteen seventies Broadway musical with a one word title, and she gets that one correct with Godspell. Mm-hmm. She took a while to think about it in that early like early to mid seventies, there was kind of a, I mean, I realized this whole thing was, you know, biblical Broadway, but especially then there, there was kind of a, a trend of Bible inspired musicals with yeah. Godspell. And they mentioned Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was Bernstein's mass, which I happen to have a bit of knowledge about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so there, there was, there was a pretty strong trend at that time. Yeah. We get Daily Double number three in the Railway and Subway Stations category at the $1,600 level. Ankit finds it. He's at $5,400. Mars at $8,200. Becky's at $2,200. This is uh, pick number 17. He wagers 1000 only. Uh, again, I would have gone bigger there. Uh, yeah, you get a Daily Double. Try to take the lead. Just try to take the lead, you know? Mm-hmm. You, ha- you have a chance to get as much as you want at that moment, right? Go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it ended up working out because he didn't get it right. He got the clue. Among Elil Saarinen's prominent works is the railway station in this capital. Uh, and he took a guess. He guessed what is Reykjavik. That's not a not a bad guess based on the name. Uh, but mm-hmm. it is Helsinki. 
Uh, I think Saarinen also designed the gateway arch. Yes, I think so. Yep. Uh, no, different, different. Oh, Eero Saarinen was mm-hmm. the is the guy who did the gateway arch. Eliel Saarinen. He's the father of Eero Saarinen. Oh, oh wow. Okay. I mean, his first name was Gottlieb. Can't he go by Gottlieb? Can't we call him Gottlieb Saarinen <laughs> so that it's not confusing? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. How dare they not make it easier for trivia people? So Eliel mm-hmm. Saarinen is the father of Eero Saarinen. Good time. Now you know. Yep. I don't know how I had learned that Grok came from Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, but I had. And so... <laughs> so you got it. I had a very gratifying moment where I got the triple stumper. Nice. Um, yeah. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Mara's at 13,800, Ankit's at 7,600, Becky's at 1,400, and we get the final Jeopardy category, the Supreme Court, and the clue, the first justice directly succeeded by his former clerk was Rehnquist by Roberts. The second time was this other alliterative pair. I was surprised by how many alliterative pairs there were to choose from. You would think that there wouldn't be that many, Hmm. but uh, yeah. So Becky had, who is Scalia? I don't think it would have made sense for Sotomayor to clerk for Scalia, probably. Um, But but I had been, I'd been kind of working through, okay, who are the most recent additions to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and remembered Sotomayor was trying to think like what, uh, what S is alliterate and like who overlaps. And anyway, um, so uh, Scalia is incorrect. Um, Becky's wagered 1400 and drops to zero. Ankit has it correct. Who Kennedy and Kavanaugh, who, who are Kevin Kennedy and Kavanaugh? Mm-hmm. Uh, he is, he's forgotten to, because they have you write the, the interrogative uh, before, before, the, yeah. before the commercial break. Uh, and that's why we keep getting questions that are uh, not grammatical. Um, but Kennedy and Kavanaugh are correct. And he has wagered 6,000. Interesting wager because it doesn't quite bring him up over Mara. Yeah, but it's, uh, too, it's, it's not like... It's not like betting to to be strategic against third place and against a cover bet because if he got it wrong, he would only he dropped down to sixteen hundred, and Becky could easily get ahead of him right. if she got it right. So it's yeah, mm-hmm. it was a strange yeah. bet. Yep, Mara has who are Ginsburg and Gorsuch, another alliterative Supreme Court pair, but not correct, of course. Uh, she has wagered fourteen oh one which drops her down to 12,399 uh, below Ankit's 13,600. And so Ankit is our winner going into Friday. And on Friday, we have the contestants Katie Sikelski, a graphic designer from Kent, Ohio. Mike Goldstein, a copywriter originally from Downington, Pennsylvania. And Ankit Gupta, a product manager from Somerville, Massachusetts, who just won $13,600. And we have the Jeopardy round categories Volcano City USA, Groups of 12, Baseball's Big Numbers, Name Calling, Education, and also a Dog Breed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, do you know of Katie Sikelski as a trivia person? I have seen way, her Kyle? name about. Yeah, I don't know she, her personally. She runs she runs some trivia endeavors. I don't know her personally either, um, but I I, uh, I interact with her in some in some uh, trivia communities. I actually was surprised she hadn't been on Jeopardy. Uh, mm-hmm. I mistakenly thought that I had seen her around in the former Jeopardy contestants groups, but no, she's just uh, I, I've encountered her in other trivia groups, and she um, she runs some trivia things, including. Um, the inkling is like a trivia by mail thing that she does. And I think everyday Q and a, um, my sister has that calendar and really likes it. I believe that Katie's, uh, one of the people behind that. Yeah. So she's a, she's a, she's a, a trivia writer as well as now a Jeopardy contestant. Yeah. Awesome. But she had a bit of a rough start in mm. uh in the jeopardy round um and mike got out to the lead initially here we started out in the baseball category mike got the thousand Ankit got the 800 um katie had a miss on that 800 at that point Ankit took us over to groups of 12 and katie got the 200 there and then she brought us back to the baseball category where Mike got the next three, mm-hmm. which struck me as, um, I mean, we didn't have like a clear pattern yet at that point. Um, and it's possible that Katie's like a baseball buff. Right. Who just wasn't able to get in on the buzzer. Mm-hmm. But it struck me as possibly a clue selection error. Um, I would say like, if you have opponents who are clearly strong in a category, especially if that's not your best category, which I don't know if it was Katie's right. uh, cup of tea, it's better to try and move toward a category where you think you might have a comparative advantage, in mm. my opinion. Agreed. I mean, ideally, we're going to get to all of these clues eventually, but right. um, if you're going to leave something on the board, you want it to be the ones you were going to miss anyway. Mm-hmm. We had some good name calling in that name calling category. That was fun. Yeah. Historical burns. Like the Roman emperor or this Roman emperor was called Biberius due to his noted love of drinking. That's Tiberius. Mm. Yes. (laughs) Burn. Got him so good. Yeah. Mayim pronounced that more like Biberius, which I think is better Latin pronunciation, but made it a little harder to get to to Tiberius, which is how we normally pronounce that name, although Mm -hmm. maybe Tiberius is more accurate. Probably. In terms of like Latin pronunciation rules. Yeah. We find Daily Double number one at the $1,000 level of Volcano City, USA. It's the 26th pick. And Mike finds it right around the end of the round. He has 3,400 at this point. Uh, he's tied with Katie. She's uh, she's caught up. Ankit's at 2,600. Mike makes it a true daily double as well. He should. Mm-hmm. And he gets the clue. This gem, gem in quotation marks, in an extinct volcanic cone with a summit that overlooks Honolulu. And he gets that one correct with Diamond Head. 
Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Mike has made it up to 7,000. Katie's at 4,000. Ankit's at 2,800. And we have the categories 1930s literature, notable women, skillful words and phrases, science, ghost, and busters. A little bit of a bummer in the notable women at the $2,000 level. They had a picture and the clue, a 2021 biography says this first female doctor in the U.S. was originally admitted to medical school as a joke. And Katie tried who is Blackburn, which is Mm. half correct. Uh, Blackwell, Elizabeth Blackwell is her name. And Ankit got the rebound on that one. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, Daily Double number two is the second pick of the round. It's in the 1930s literature category at the $1,600 level. Mike finds it. He is at 8,600. Like I said, 1,200, and Katie's at 4,000, and he wagers 5,000. I think that is a smart move, given his lead and how early it is in the game. He gets the clue. After a plane crash in the Himalayas, four people end up in Shangri-La in this 1933 novel. And he guessed what is Paradise Regained. I have never heard of that, so I don't. I have no idea what connection that would be. Uh, but that is Lost Horizon. Yeah, Paradise Regained, um, if there's anything later than the 1671 John Milton epic poem, yeah, it's an epic poem. Yeah, if there's if there's something more recent that he was thinking of, I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, maybe he was just kind of working off the, like, associating from Shangri-La. So, rough break there. Uh, he recovers and stays kind of a, a bit ahead of the other two. And then at the 16th pick, Ankit finds Daily Double number three at the $1,600 level of skillful words and phrases. He has 5,600 to Mike's 10,400. Katie's at 6,400. Ankit wagers 5,000. So he's looking to take the lead. Uh, That's almost everything he's got. And he gets the clue from the French for right you're skillful in mind or body if you're deemed it. Ankit says, I should have bet less. <laughs> 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 Which <laughs> is charming. Um, <laughs> I I know that feeling. <laughs> um, <laughs> he doesn't have a guess. Uh, the correct response here, and it like it pains me to pronounce it this way, adroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, I guess, how that is pronounced in English. I, I've never heard anyone say it in English. Adroit? Um, yeah. yeah. Because it's from the French. It's from the French, yes. Uh, in French, that would be adroit. Uh, so pronouncing it adroit just sort of hurts my heart a little. Yeah, um, but I mean, it has all the letters they deserve to be heard. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. Um, but Yeah. So he yeah. drops down... And uh, at that point, it's a bit late for him to be able to make a real comeback. Uh, however, Katie, Katie moves up pretty significantly in the next uh, next few clues and gets much, much closer to Mike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she really went on a good buzzer run mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going into Final Jeopardy, uh, Ankit's at 1,800. Katie is at 11,200 and Mike is at 12,800. We get the final Jeopardy category geography words and the clue from the Latin for key. This word for a type of isolated country applies to Vatican City, which has keys on its flag. Uh, Ankit 
gets it correct with what is an enclave. Clave there being mm-hmm. the, the, the Latin. Uh, but he wagered zero, which I think is a smart move. I mean, you know, d- d- depending on, on cover bets and everything. Yeah. He, he could have bet a little bit, but yeah. Um, um, it, I think if second place wagers correctly, they're not going to drop within his reach. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. his only real chance is getting it correct and having somebody miss wager right. and miss. Yeah. Uh, Katie put what is a C, which, you know, the talking about Vatican City, that makes sense. Uh, but that's incorrect. And she wagered 3201, which is a correct wager. And Mike wrote, what is a principality? And he wagered 10000 which is a cover bet and a bit. Like $400 more than a cover bet. So he drops down to second place. And that means that Katie is the winner. So that's the week. Uh, we'll see her come back next week. Uh, Mine Bialik is done as guest host. I thought she did a very good job. I thought yeah. she seemed she seemed comfortable and natural in a way that mm-hmm. some of the others did not necessarily. Uh, next week is Savannah Guthrie, which I don't know that I've ever actually seen Savannah Guthrie on TV, so I have absolutely no preconceived notions. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have either. I don't watch morning shows, so... Uh, yeah. So, that's uh, that's the week, and this is the time where we take a quick break to remind you that we have a Patreon and you can support us financially there. It is patreon.com slash potentpotables. Uh, you can check it out. We know that you are really in it for the altruism uh, and the support of things you enjoy and not for bonus content, but even so, there is a little bit of bonus content there for you because we care. Uh, so you can check that out. And support us if you feel so inclined. And for those of you who already do, thank you. We appreciate it very, very much. Uh, and also, we take this time to remind you that uh, our, you know, our world, our communities, our society is still dealing with a lot of issues. And as much as money doesn't necessarily solve all the issues, providing money or time or even advocacy are ways that you can help. Uh, and we'd like to point you to communityjusticeexchange.org, blacklivesmatter.com, and also, more recently, the uh, Stop Asian Hate GoFundMe uh, database mm-hmm. uh, to fi- find something that, you know, you feel worthwhile in, uh, in working with. Yes. Uh, so, Emily, what are your yes, deep dive Kyle. guesses? I have my guesses. Okay. Okay, are you going to tell us what's going on with the sport of polo? Uh, no. I did think about it, but no. Okay. What about Walter Reed? Uh, nope. Nope. I, yeah, I don't know. That just didn't interest me at all. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. Uh, all right. Um, what about not the, uh, 21st century... Uh, billionaire, but the um, 19th century scientist, Tesla. I mean, Tesla's not a billionaire. Uh, the Elon right. Musk is a billionaire. No, no, I I really strongly, Nikola Tesla was very close, because I was like, you know, I should learn more about Tesla, because he, he was a pretty cool dude, from what I understand. But no, uh, none of those. Instead... From the Tuesday game, the late category in the Jeopardy round, the $1,000 level, caused by a water mold late, this caused the Irish potato famine. That is Ooh. late late blight. 
Yes. So uh, I'm going to be diving into what late blight is and really get into my call. No, I'm talking about the Great Potato Famine. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so the Great Famine of Ireland, also known as the Great Hunger or the Famine or the Irish Potato Famine, or sometimes uh, if you go with the like the Celtic term for it uh it's it translates to the hard times or literally the bad life Mm. um i'm not even gonna attempt to pronounce it because man i love that language like hearing it but i I cannot make that sound with my mouth if you think that french does not match up well (laughs) with the letters and their sounds in english right (laughs) i've got some news for you (laughs) right right uh so the the great famine lasted from 1845 to 1852 uh not only in ireland but was most severe and most impactful in ireland but it actually spread throughout europe uh, affecting uh, potato crops all, all over. Uh, it was a period of mass starvation and disease. Uh, the worst year of the period was 1847, known as Black 47. Uh, and during the Great Hunger, about a million people died and more than a million fled Ireland, causing the country's population to fall by uh, nearly 25%, and some towns falling as much as two-thirds between 1841 and 1851. Those were census years, and so in the 1851 census, they got a general idea of the impact of the famine, but historians looking back are like, no, those numbers are way too low. (laughs) Those numbers, every number reported is too low. Uh, Mm. You know, deaths caused by either starvation or disease that was not fought off due to starvation need to be higher. Uh, the number of people immigrating emigrating needs to be higher, that kind of thing. The proximate cause of the famine was a potato blight, and it was known as Phytophthora infestans. It is an umicete, or water mold, and it's a fungus-like microorganism uh, that causes the serious potato and tomato disease known as late blight. So it affected tomatoes as well. Uh, but it's not actually a fungus. It's a fungus-like <laughs> disease, which I'm not, I didn't really get into deeper, but uh, that's hmm. what it is. Uh, and it infected potato crops all throughout Europe during the 1840s. Uh, an additional 100,000 deaths outside of Ireland uh, occurred, and it also is considered to have influenced some of the unrest that uh, led to the revolutions of 1848, which I think I'm, I don't know how much I've talked about, but I feel like I've mentioned the revolutions of 1848 a few times. When yeah. talking about, like, the unification of Italy and, and, and German states and all that. From 1846, the impact of the blight was exacerbated by the British Whig government's economic policy of laissez-faire capitalism. Huzzah! Uh, as well as the uh, system of absentee landlordism and single crop dependence. The famine was a watershed moment in the history of Ireland, uh, which at that time, the entire... Ireland was part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland ever since the uh, uh, Acts of Union in 1800. And it's uh, it's like a, a very strong part of the native Irish and the diaspora like folk memory. The the famine is the is a big like turning point and a thing to look at, um, not only as something that kind of like it was a hardship that the people faced. It was also a way to 
point at England and say, you are making this worse. You didn't like we <laughs> this could have been so much better if you had done better. And so the uh, the strained relations between many Irish and their ruling British government worsened. It heightened ethnic and sectarian tension and boosted nationalism and republicanism, both in Ireland and among Irish immigrants around the world. The Blight did return to Eng- uh, Europe in 1879, but uh, certain reforms had been put in place by that point after a period called the Land War, which was a period of agrarian agitation in rural Ireland. And it was one of the largest agrarian movements in Ireland. A, a group calling themselves the Land League, they pushed for three Fs, which was uh, free sale, fixity of tenure, and fair rent. And so by getting some of those things enacted in Ireland, the the uh, the blight in 1879 did not have nearly the effect uh, because the League boycotted, boycotted notorious landlords and its members physically blocked the evictions of farmers. And would you believe it? The consequent reduction in homelessness and house demolition resulted in a drastic reduction in the number of deaths. Hmm. Imagine that. When people have a place to live, they're more likely to survive. It's astounding. Yeah. (laughs) The absentee landlordism and and that kind of thing were major contributing factors to, like, the the, the huge impact of the blight. Uh, Let's dive a little bit more into it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time really, like, elucidating all of the different ways that the Irish were basically second-class citizens within the United Kingdom. But over time... The Irish land was essentially bought up or like claimed by Irish nobility who then through, you know, during the Act of Union and, and as part of Great Britain would lease that land out, would rent that land out to farmers. And over time, they would keep they would increasingly dissect their plots into smaller and smaller uh, sections to rent so they could make more money because they put more people on smaller plots of land. And during, you know, before the blight and during the blight, a lot of good farmland was repurposed to pasture cattle because the 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 English developed a great taste for beef. And so tenants in Ireland had no fixed tenure which meant like if they were renting, they could just be evicted for any reason at any time. Uh, And they often were in order to take that land and use it as grazing, like pasture land for cattle. Um, And they were just left homeless. Um, Also, any kinds of improvement upon the land or the property that the, the renter made was owned by the landlord. So there was absolutely no incentive to improve the quality of the housing or the the facilities or anything like that, because you could spend this money and this time improving this house. And then the next day the landlord could say, you don't live here anymore. And they couldn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so over time, this, and just like the general treatment of Ireland as like different other, right. They even had their own church of Ireland made the Irish farmer, the cottier, in a position of, of, like, unavoidable poverty. And so when the blight came, by this point, uh, potato had become the primary staple for Irish farmers because it was pretty much the only crop that could be grown in abundance 
or in enough abundance to like feed your family and be able to pay your rent on the very small plots of land that were being rented to these farmers. So they ended up in a system of single crop dependence, right? Nobody was growing anything but potatoes because they wouldn't be able to survive on anything else. And so the blight came and it it didn't necessarily wipe out the potato crop, but it severely reduced it. So uh, prior to the arrival in Ireland of the uh, Phytophthora infestans, only two main potato plant diseases had been identified. One was called dry rot or taint, and the other was a virus known as curl. And so this is a different, this is a, a new disease. In 1851, the Census of Ireland Commissioners recorded 24 failures of the potato crop going back to 1728, a varying severity. So this was not the first time that the potato crop had failed. And the quote I have here from, from a historian is, the unreliability of the potato was an accepted fact in Ireland. So the notion of a crop failing was not new, but also they didn't really have much of a choice because, like I said, that was the only way they could survive. However, the this blight, how it arrived in Europe and when is still uncertain, but it probably wasn't in Europe before 1844 or 42 and probably arrived in 1844. The origin of the pathogen has been traced to the Toluca Valley in Mexico and it spread through North America and then to Europe. So uh, in 1844, Irish newspapers had reports uh, about a disease that for two years had attacked the potato crops in America. Apparently, we had a potato famine in America in 1843 and 44, although I wouldn't, hmm. I guess it wouldn't be a famine. It would just be the potato crop was severely impacted because, you know, the United States was not uh, single crop dependent. But it's suspected that ships from Baltimore, Philadelphia, or New York City could have carried the diseased potatoes to European ports, you know, on, on trading ships. Um, and it spread rapidly once it reached Europe. By mid-August 1845, it had reached much of Northern Europe and Central Europe. Belgium, the Netherlands, Northern France, and Southern England had already been affected. In August 1845, reports start coming around of this. And by the end of 1845, the blight is like very clearly recognized. However, the British government remained optimistic over the next few weeks, uh, even as it received conflicting reports. When the crop was lifted or harvested in October of 1845, the destruction became apparent. Uh, Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel began to take action, or at least he wanted to, but he was reminded that there was always a tendency to exaggeration in Irish news, which just feels... Awesome. Hmm. Um, so the crop loss in 1845 has been estimated at anywhere from one third to as high as one half of the cultivated acreage. Lots, lots of potatoes. In 1846, three quarters of the harvest were lost, was lost to the blight. Um, and by December of 1846, a third of a million people were employed by public works. The first reports of starvation, of death from starvation, were recorded in the fall of 1846. And seed potatoes were scarce in 1847, so because few had been sown, uh, hunger continued in the following years because they had fewer growing, even though the blight wasn't necessarily as bad. 1848 yields were only two-thirds of normal. So, you know, as it progressed, the famine got worse. Ireland, obviously, the people of Ireland were pretty peeved. <laughs> uh, they constantly petitioned the the government to, like, 
step in and do something to like give them a chance to survive. There were a group of uh, a group of nobles and and other members of the community in Dublin who uh, offered suggestions to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Lord Hatesbury, saying that they should open the ports to foreign corn, stop distillation from grain, prohibit the export of foodstuffs, and provide employment through public works. At that time, this was November 1845, Lord Hatesbury urged them not to be alarmed and that they were premature, that, in sci- that scientists were inquiring into all the matters. Uh, there was a group called the Repeal Association that formed in that year. This was a group of... Um, parliamentarians and other political people in Ireland who wanted to repeal the Act of Union and return Irish Ireland to self-rule, or at least provide some kind of Irish parliament to be able to make decisions for Ireland. They also looked to other parts of Europe. For instance, Belgium had pretty quickly figured out that uh, they needed to not export foodstuffs until they could feed everyone in Belgium. They also put a limit on evictions and uh, and kind of you know kind of locked down. They 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 gave people a chance to survive, and so the uh, the repeal association and many Irish people pointed to that as like we could do this. You should do that. This is what what the government should do to help us survive. Uh, but that wasn't done, and kind of as a result of that, an armed rebellion in 1848 was attempted in Ireland. Uh, but it failed. This began with a Tory government under uh, Robert Peel, and actually he pretty quickly purchased 100,000 pounds worth worth of maize and cornmeal secretly from America uh, and shipped it to Ireland. So he he actually did do something pretty quickly, but the first shipment uh, didn't arrive in Ireland until the beginning of February 1846. What was supposed to be the first shipment was lost at sea. Uh, and the cornmeal, uh, the maize, was unground dried kernels, and there weren't really mills in Ireland to process it. So before the cornmeal could even be consumed, it had to go through a lengthy process of, of milling and then be very much cooked again, or it could cause bowel problems. It was not popular. Uh, they ended up calling it Peel's Brimstone, which, like, it's nice that he tried. <laughs> Didn't didn't work out well. Peel moved to he he moved to repeal the corn laws, which were tariffs and other f- trade restrictions on imported food. But it split his party, and he had insufficient support support from his colleagues. Um, and so, as he tried to deal with this, uh, Parliament just really didn't allow things to move forward. And so he was forced to resign as Prime Minister on June 29th, 1846, and Lord John Russell became Prime Minister with a Whig government. Uh, the Whig government was very much into, into laissez-faire capitalism. They believed that the market would provide the food needed, which is what markets do, right? Eventually, by the end of 1846, he did put in a public works program, but that program was very quickly overwhelmed and the administration of the program became pretty much impossible. Also, because the people in charge of it still firmly believed in laissez-faire capitalism, they didn't really try very hard. There were a lot of charity movements from around the world that worked to try to provide aid. Queen Victoria donated 2,000 pounds of her own money. James Polk donated $50. 1847 Congressman Abraham Lincoln donated $10. I understand that money was worth more then. 
Yes. Than, uh, than it is now, but that still. I yeah. Know. Yeah. Lincoln's ten dollars was averaged at probably about three hundred twenty-five dollars now. Okay. Well, Which is like not it's not nothing. Else. Yeah. Um, there's a book uh, written by uh, a, a uh, an Irish uh, kind of like politician historian named uh, Mitchell. Uh, called The Last Conquest of Ireland, in parentheses, perhaps, uh, which is about, like, what was going on at the time, um, the the famine and all that. Um, in it, that uh, he purported, and the, the general idea among the Irish was, like, we did not, we did not seek charity. Like, the Irish sentiment of the whole famine was, like, we didn't go with hat in hand, we didn't seek charity, we didn't ask for anything other than simply... That our government do what it's supposed to do. We didn't. We didn't. You know. We didn't go begging, even though England is is portraying us as you know destitute beggars. Either way, the city of Calcutta made a generous donation in a, in 1846 of like 14,000 pounds. Uh, Czar Alexander II, and according to questionable story, Sultan Abdulmasid I of the Ottoman Empire originally offered to send 10,000 pounds but was either asked by British diplomats or his own ministers to reduce it to 1,000 pounds to avoid donating more than Queen Victoria had, which feels good. There were a lot of Catholic uh, charity movements throughout the world uh, to provide aid, and one really notable one was uh, $170, which totals over $5,000 in today's money, uh, collected from a group of Native American Choctaws in 1847. And this was only 16 years since the Trail of Tears. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, and this is a really like important, really important thing to to Ireland. Um, and to mark the hundredth anniversary of that donation, eight Irish people re- retraced the Trail of Tears, and the donation wow. was pu- publicly commemorated by President Mary Robinson of Ireland hmm. uh, at that time. Uh, also, there is a uh, monument in Ireland. It is called Kindred Spirits. Large stainless steel sculpture of nine eagle feathers by artist Alex Penatek, erected in 2017 in Middleton, Cork County, to thank the Choctaw people. Really cool. Like I said, during this time, evictions occurred all over the place. Basically, landlords were responsible for paying the rates of every tenant whose yearly rent was four pounds or less. So landlords whose land was crowded with poorer tenants were now faced with large bills. So what they did, they just cleared the tenants from their plots. And lent the land in larger plots for over four four pounds a year, so they owed less money, and they made more. And so mass evictions came in 1847. Tens of thousands of people, actually almost like 250,000 people, officially evicted between 1849 and 1854. And so these were, you know, usually violent, and oftentimes the agents of the landlord... The landlords all lived in London. They didn't even bother living on their land. They rarely visited their land at all. But their agents would go and forcibly remove people and often even, like, burn the house. So, like, the person couldn't even have a chance of living there. Yeah. There were uh, certain secret societies, like the Ribbon Men, who was a popular movement of poor Catholics in Ireland, who kind of took it on themselves to act against the landlords and their agents. And a number of landlords were assassinated by either these secret societies or just disgruntled farmers. There were a lot of shootings of landlords. Um, And in fact, there was even a Crime and Outrage Act of 1847 that was passed regarding crime in Ireland, (laughs) which is uh, pretty funny. Um, And also, obviously, a lot of Irish people moved 
left Ireland, uh, many of which came to the United States and the, and the New World came to Canada as well. Often because they were penniless, they had to stay in the city where they landed, which is why we have such uh, large now historical populations of, of Irish descendants in Boston and New York and, uh, you know, Philadelphia and the various eastern ports, as well as Montreal, Ottawa, you know, and, and, the, uh, and the Caribbean, Kingston, Hamilton, St. John. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned the death toll, you know, is... is Assumed to be over a million, and uh, and the emigration is also up there uh, in probably a million, either moving far away, like across the Atlantic, or emigrating just to England or to the continent. After the famine, it, it, it affected like marriage age and rates in Ireland, particularly because low wages and economic problems, you know, following the famine, Ireland didn't recover from the famine. They didn't get to recover, even though potato crop came back. It was like the the systems were still in place that caused the problems nothing was really fixed i mentioned the land war uh that occurred over the next couple of decades and those were sometimes violent sometimes just political uh you know movements to kind of gain rights for farmers and and for the like common folk and there is a question as to whether the uh the great famine is should be considered a genocide hmm most historians reject that claim. However, some places, and even in 1996, the state of New Jersey included included the famine in their Holocaust and genocide curriculum in a, their high schools, in their public high schools. Uh, and it was defended by some academics uh, who claimed that the British government deliberately pursued a race and, and ethnicity-based policy aimed at destroying the Irish people, and that the policy of mass starvation amounted to genocide. Uh, per retrospective application of Article 2 of the Hague Convention of 1848. However, like I said, most people, most historians don't don't claim that. Even even many Irish historians. They argue that genocide includes murderous intent and that the famine did not have that. While, you know, there may have been neglect and uh, the government in England did not necessarily care much, it was not intended to destroy the Irish people in their mind. There is a National Famine Commemoration Day observed in Ireland annually, usually on a Sunday in May. And it is also recognized in other places throughout the world, <clears throat> including New York City. Uh, and there are various uh, memorials and such uh, in different places, like the one I mentioned, Kindred Spirits, Summit Custom House Keys in Dublin, um, and the uh, Irish Hunger Memorial in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. I know that one well. I used to live near that one. Nice. So that's like that's it. I wish I wish like I wish I had a, a neat wrap up to it, but it's like the blight ended and things still sucked. <laughs> like yeah. And I mean, uh, we probably anybody listening at least knows that you know the 20th century in Ireland was pretty bad, right? Like there were yep. the troubles for uh -huh. a long time. And this, you know, the famine was just like one big step toward that, mm -hmm. you know. So it's not like the famine ended and and a bunch of things were enacted that, you know, made things all the better. It, it just kind of, yeah, it's a period of history that didn't really wrap up so much as just... Segue into the next. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so there you go. So there it is. Yeah. Wow. That's a good topic. And I yeah. didn't know... 
I mean, I knew I knew it happened, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. So this, I, I really appreciate, uh, really appreciate it. It's good yeah. to learn more. All right, let's do a quiz. Yes, let's do a quiz. Okay, these are potato related. Okay, I do like potatoes. All right, what is the name of the the boiled potato and usually cabbage dish typically served at Halloween with a thimble or a ring in it? It is of Irish origin. Is that one Colcannon? It is Colcannon. Yes. I had not heard of that until this week. <laughs> mm. <laughs> All right. Ten points. Uh, question two. If you say potato, I say potato and sound like a doofus. These lyrics are found in Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. Uh, that song was famously performed by Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. But which pair of brothers wrote that song? Oh, um, is it the Gershwins? It is the Gershwins, George and Ira. George wrote the music. Ira wrote the words. Question three. Clark, South Dakota is the potato capital of South Dakota. Not not my words. (laughs) (laughs) They host potato days every year, and the highlight of those potato days is what sporting event? Contestants face off in a contained ring and usually wear bathing suits so they can be hosed off afterward. Wait, what? It's a, it's what sporting contest? Yeah, we call it a contest. Was that, what was, what was I the word you had? I said event, but you can call sporting it, Sporting yeah. event. And it's potato related? It is potato the, related. The it, yes, it occurs during their potato days festival. Potato contest. No, um, uh, um, why would they, what are they, what is being hosed off of them? Is it dirt because they're digging potatoes? Is it ketchup because it's a <coughs> French fry eating contest? <laughs> like, <I'm> just, <laughs> I, I, uh, it's a potato toss. Yeah. <laughs> it is mashed potato wrestling. Oh, good lord. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and in my research, Clark, South Dakota is not the only place to have a mashed potato wrestling contest at their, like, annual fair. Just so you know, it's not mud wrestling, it's mashed potato wrestling. However, they were they they specified in what I was reading that it's not actual edible mashed potatoes. It's like, you know, like potato sweepings and like, you know, parts that are inedible. They just kind of like mash together and then they feed it to cattle afterwards. So no food is wasted. You know, mud wrestling briefly occurred to me and I was like, mm, that's not relevant. Not related. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's um that that's vaguely horrifying. <laughs> but now I know. There you <laughs> so go. So do our listeners. Yep. Alright, you are at twenty points, right? This is question four. Yes. Most of us in elementary school did the potato battery experiment where you touch a nail and a penny to some wires that are plugged into a potato that are plugged into a light bulb or something, which is called the potato battery experiment. In that experiment, the potato acts as a what? 
which conducts electric current as a result of a dissociation into positively and negatively charged particles called ions, which migrate toward and ordinarily are discharged at the negative and positive terminals, the cathode and anode, of an electric circuit, respectively. What does the potato act as? Oh, no. Um... Or in simpler terms, what is a thing that helps conductance? I've got two terms coming to mind. And... One I know is like... I, re- I remember like talking about it... it in uh like studying electricity um but i don't think it's right like i think it does the opposite of what the potato's doing um uh and then the other i'm not confident but if it's an actual thing that then it's more likely to be right um okay all right i have picked um, so the two words that are coming to mind, and probably as a third thing, are resistor and capacitor, and I'm going to guess capacitor. It is an electrolyte. Oh, oh, okay. Which, all right. you know, we always hear with, like, Gatorade, it's like, filled with electrolytes, which oh. all that an electrolyte is, is a, a thing in some kind of, like, suspension right. that, that, makes that sense. encourages electron flow. Yeah, I was thinking about like, um, like the like the mm-hmm. circuit diagrams that I would make sure. in in, uh, in physics classes yeah, and yeah. stuff. Um, but potatoes were not part of those. <laughs> circuits, so not usually I was thinking in the wrong direction. Yeah, and when you look up how long does a potato battery last, you get two to five days. It lasts until the potato goes bad. Hmm. So there you go. Yeah. Question five. Which actor has the longest runtime of recorded lines in the entire Toy Story franchise, including material compiled for a posthumous role? Oh, no. I saw his name so recently. It's the guy who does Mr. Potato Head. What is his name? Hold on. This came up in Learned League this season, right? I think. It might have. Um, maybe that's why this question came to me so easily. Yeah. Oh, I can't remember his name. Ah, come on, Emily. I feel like it's a last name that it's a first that is also a first name. So I'm gonna go with something. Gilbert. It is Don Rickles. Oh, Don Rickles. It's not a last name. That's a first name. All right. It's got Rick. Don. Well, I guess sort of. Yeah. Maybe that's why that was in my head. Okay. Don Rickles. Next time I will know his name and not just the Mr. Potato Head guy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, when you compile all of the main movies and then all of the shorts and like bonus things uh, throughout the entire Toy Story franchise, he has the longest runtime of recorded lines. That's... Hmm. Which is, but which shocked me. I was like, they're like that, but not Woody. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. I was like, how, how does Tom Hanks not have that? <laughs> but uh, no, apparently it's Don Rickles. 
Huh. Because, yeah, all the extra stuff that didn't have Woody in it, you know, all the, all the little, like, cartoon shorts and things like that. All right. Well, you have... Oh, I made I'm this a-, a lot harder than I thought I did. <laughs> uh, you have 20 points. I will wager all of them with... Well, let's hear the category. Uh, fun with language. All right. I'll wager all 20. Okay. Um, cool. So, here you go. When speaking Spanish, it is important to remember gendered articles for nouns. Especially... If you want to eat the potato, be sure to specify la papa. You might get a strange look if you ask to eat el papa. Why? Um, because that's, like, the father. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be, yeah. Uh, also, if the P is capitalized, it's Pope. Oh! Oh, of course it is. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) The... Yeah, when you're when you're learning that in in Spanish, the gendered <laughs> article matters a lot sometimes. <laughs> All right, well you got forty points. That's yeah, there you go. That's respectable. Yeah. All right, that's that's fine. I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it was a it was a it was a good quiz. I uh, I was close on a couple of those. Um, but no, this was this was fun, and now we all know about mashed potato wrestling. Yeah, try it at home. To- <laughs> I think my children have not done any mashed potato wrestling. Uh, I bet they'd love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I bet they would. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, thanks for thanks for our great uh, deep dive and quiz, Kyle, and for making a podcast with me. Of course. And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Uh, Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would be so kind. Uh, If you want to check out our Patreon, it's at patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. It sure is. Uh, We'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm